John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those who he gave me, I have lost not one. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. May God help us to hear his word. Let's go. Uh, Father God, we don't come to you with much. In fact, we come empty-handed. For just these few moments, we have put aside our work, we put aside our ambitions, and we come into your presence just as we are. We pray that this morning you would open our hearts to hear your word, and that through your word, we would sense your grip on our hearts and on our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as many of you have probably figured out, next Sunday is April 1st. And as everyone knows, April 1st was Dr. P's birthday. Yeah, some of you were thinking April Fool's. Well, I was too, honestly. So this week, I was remembering what my uh, April Fool's in past was like and it was rather awkward honestly I really was not sure if the day was a holiday or not but I do remember one particular day I was still in primary school I have no idea how old I was 
But one of my classmates decided it would be a great April Fool's joke to pull a prank on the teacher. I don't even remember what the prank was. But I remember Mr. Keller was not happy. He sprung from his chair, which makes me suspect it was probably the old tax on the chair trick. And he stood in front of his desk. And in Canada, that's not a good sign, like when the pastor stands in front of the pulpit. And he says, I would like whoever did this to step up right now. I didn't know who did it. Now, clearly, he was depending on something. He was depending on the possibility that this young man would suddenly find a moral compass he didn't have 30 years ago, or, sorry, 30 minutes ago. He was, would have only been seven or eight. And, and, and then after a few moments of terrified silence, he said, if I don't hear in the next two minutes who pulled this prank, the whole class has detention. which means he was depending on something else. He was depending on the possibility that all of us had fully embraced a blame culture, and you know what? He was right, because as soon as he said, the whole class will have detention, suddenly there was this cacophony of, I know who did it. It was James who did it. It was Jamie who did it. It was John who did it. I didn't know. I just kept quiet. The whole class had detention. We, uh, all of us, live in this um, blame culture. From my childhood, and if you have a sibling, you know what I'm talking about. The first thing that happens whenever our parents said, who did this, whatever this was, my first response is, not me, it was my brother. I just assumed if it wasn't me, it was my brother, and I also assumed if I did something, I didn't want to be punished, so it was my brother. I, I fully embrace this blame culture, and maybe even in your workplace you've encountered this. You know, a, a project kind of does not succeed, and then there's an evaluation. What is the point of an evaluation? The point is, first, find out what went wrong, and second, find out whose fault it is. So everyone comes to the meeting, right? All prepared to defend their own position of innocence and put the blame on somebody else. We all live in this blame culture. So how do we go through Holy Week in this culture of blame? I want to suggest, like, this is the outline if you need one. First, when we think we know what we want, Second, and discover what we have. Third, we often offer our worst. And fourth, he gives us his best. I'm moving on from this side. We begin in our text in verse 1 of John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words. Now, whenever a scripture starts <clears throat> with when this happened, then something else happened, then it would benefit us to know what, what words is he talking about. Many of you know <clears throat> that chapter 17 of John is sometimes called the Lord's Prayer. If you have an ESV Bible, it might have the subtitle that says the High Priestly Prayer. Jesus is praying in the garden, and you will notice that in his prayer, he's not always asking for things. Sometimes he is just talking to the Father, declaring 
his desires, declaring to the Father what he desires. And here are the last words Jesus spoke then in chapter 17. O righteous Father. This is the only time in the Bible this particular term for God is given. Nowhere else in the Bible is this title, O righteous Father given. Now, why would Jesus be praying, addressing God as righteous Father? Because he knew that his Father was a God of righteousness. He knew that this righteous God was about to extract justice. Jesus knew what was going to happen. And then he went on. Even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these, meaning these disciples, some of whom were sleeping around him, one of whom was remembering this prayer, these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in you. This is going to be really, really important that we understand what Jesus is referring to when he says, I have made your name known. That means I have exposed your character. They know who you are, and I will continue, even in this last week on earth, to make your character known. Not just what your name is, but what it means. That the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You see, the character of God is not just sacrificial love. Jesus is going to show the entire world and his disciples what that sacrificial love looks like. Why? Because he's not content to walk with them. He desires to be in them. That's the goal of the disciple. Not just to know stuff, but to be saturated, filled with the one who desires to be known. That is the preface to verse 1. So, first, when we think, we know who it is we seek. Verses 2 and 3 says this, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Remember, this is going to project into what we offer our worst. You know, Judas didn't come there with an open heart. He came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. While Jesus was about to teach his disciples what sacrificial love is like, Judas was preparing for something else. When we think we know who we're looking for. Now, now notice that Judas knew the place because this place was an open secret. 
That garden was where Jesus ended every day. His disciples would gather there. Now, the English is insufficient. I don't know if any language is sufficient to translate this Greek word. It's not just Jesus often met there with his disciples. The word is sunago. It's the same word that's been preserved in the Greek word synagogue. Synagogue. This garden was Jesus, Rabbi Jesus' teaching place. And he was about to teach his disciples a most painful lesson on what godly, sacrificial love looks like. And then in verses 4 and 5, it says this amazing thing. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? It's important to know, right? Whom do you seek? The first thing we ought to notice is this. Jesus knew all that was about to happen to him. Judas plotted in secret. He bargained for his betrayal in secret. They gathered an army and, and brought weapons in secret. But Jesus was not ambushed. He was not surprised. He was waiting in his synagogues, waiting to teach his disciples and the world how love responds to a blame culture. So when we think we know what we're looking for, then we understand what we have. Verses 6 through 8, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Now, the Bible doesn't specifically tell us what the soldiers or who the soldiers were looking for. But what we do know is what they got was not what they expected. And, and I kind of know uh, how they felt in that moment because I, I remember my brother and I um, would love to go down to the Nicomaco River and go fishing for steelhead. This is a steelhead. Uh, steelhead is a freshwater salmon. It's a salmon that lives in rivers in the north, in, in Canada. And they are about 15% head and, and the rest amazing flavorful meat. My brother and I love to fish for steelhead. Now, now steelhead are very fast fish. They, they fish from the medium part of the depths up to the shallows because they're snatching bugs from the water. That means you've got to really focus. You've got to pay attention. You've got to make your bait skip along the water. Well, have you noticed that I'm not really a focus guy? Like my brother would focus, he would cast out and then he would jig his line, he would reel, he would jig, he would reel. I, I would throw it out and then I would notice grasshoppers. And I would start catching grasshoppers and then I would notice other stuff and I'd go wandering off and my worm would slowly float to the bottom. So while we were fishing for steelhead, I caught bullhead. <laughs> bullhead are not a hunting fish. 
They're an ambush fish. And, and you know something about steelhead, salmon? You can grab them anywhere. They're not going to hurt you. But bullheads, uh, they're nasty business. They're about 80% head, hardly any meat. And, and all of their dorsal fin, their pectoral fins, they all have spines in them. Even their gills have spines sticking out of them. Can you see above their eyeballs? Even above their eyeballs, there's prickly spines. So I grabbed that just like my brother was grabbing steelhead and I got pierced through. I dropped back, I rolled on the ground and ended up in the river because I was fishing for steelhead and caught a bullhead. You better know what you're looking for when you come looking for Jesus. Because a lot of us come for different reasons. Some people come to prove him wrong. Some of us have a crisis conversion. I know what you're talking about. When you have a crisis conversion, you need a savior. I had one of those on a highway in southwest Missouri when there was a shotgun focused right at my head when they were going to send me to whatever freak God who made me, I started needing a Savior in a hurry. I cried out, Jesus, right now. Like, I'll go back to church. You know, come and save me. That's what I needed, a Savior. Saviors are awesome, right? Because they do intervention, and then they leave us alone. But a Lord... That Lord is meddling in every minute of every day of every week of every year. You better know what you're fishing for because you might catch something you weren't looking for. Those soldiers, who are they looking for? Some impoverished preacher from a little village called Nazareth. They didn't expect eternity to respond. When Jesus spoke and said, I am, they fell back because he spoke with the authority of God. Do you understand? This is what John was talking about when Jesus said, I've made your name known. How do we know the name of God? Because an insecure shepherd named Moses said, listen, if I'm going to do something for you, you need to tell me who am I serving? Who am I going to tell the people of Israel that I represent? You remember what God said in Exodus 3, verse 12. He said, tell them I am has sent you. And John noticed all the times Jesus identified with God by using this name of God in a sentence. In John 6, he said, I am the living bread. John 8, 23, I am from above. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. John 8, 24, you will die in your sins for you did not believe that I am. Verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. This word means I exist yesterday, today, forever. This is the name of God. Jesus, before Abraham was, I am. He said in verse 9 of chapter 10, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. 
Verse 36, I am the Son of God. Verse 25 of chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine. Even the chief priests had learned to reference eternity. So in John 19, they're negotiating with Pilate as to the crime that would hang above the crucified man. And Pilate had determined his crime is what offends Rome, king of the Jews. But the Pharisees wanted the crime that offended them. He said, I am the king of the Jews. He was saying that he is our God and our king, and that is his crime. I am, Jesus said. I have let them know your name and will continue to let them know your name. And then we sometimes offer him our worst. You know, I've, I've come to believe, honestly, that most people have no idea what in the world they're looking for. In fact, I often ask people when they are visiting church, and this doesn't happen a lot in Singapore, but it happens a lot in the West. People have heard about Christianity. They know their roots are Christianity. They're post-Christian. So they just show up in church one time. And I ask them, so tell me... Um, Anybody invite you? No, I just came on my own. So, why did you come? Don't know. Not, not really sure. People know they're looking for something. But most people have no idea what they're looking for. In, in 1987, this um, Irish you know, supergroup sold about a gazillion records. When they, you know, and by the way, three of the four consider themselves to be evangelical Christian of the, you know, the European drinking, swearing kind. They surrounded themselves with a gospel choir and they sang, I have climbed the highest mountains, I've run through the fields only to be with you. I've run, I've crawled, I've scaled these city walls only to be with you but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. The Bible doesn't specifically say what Judas was looking for. But we can guess he was looking for a Messiah just like everyone else in Jerusalem. A military leader who would restore Israel to its former glory. A Messiah that would make him assistant Messiah, and then he followed, gave two and a half years of his best years to this penniless prophet from Nazareth, and when he's thinking about messianic greatness, this prophet says to him, if you want to be great, then you've got to be a servant of all. He was fishing for something and got something he did not want. And so instead of coming with an open heart, with an art full of obedience, he came with lamps and torches and weapons. 
He said, Jesus, you know, I've, I've gone through these city streets with you. I've climbed hills. I've handed out food, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That's why Jesus continues to ask, you know, what are you looking for? Who are you seeking? Judas came with his worst. Peter, trying to help out, did his best with a sword, which is the worst. The soldiers, after they climbed up to their feet, bound his outreached arms as if they could tie up the king of glory. They offered Jesus his worst, and Jesus offers better, and then he offers best. Verses 12 through 13 says, the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year. Annas was the CFO of the religious elite. He was the money man. He is infamous in history for overcharging for the sacrifices when people came and, whoa, I couldn't get a sacrifice on the way. They would have to pay the crazy prices in the temple. It was Annas' tables that Jesus turned over. It was Annas' silver that lined the pockets of Judas. But if Annas was the CFO... Caiaphas was the CEO. He was the strategy man. He was the man who made the plans and managed and, managed and balanced the various systems, how to keep Rome happy, how to keep the people from rioting, how to keep everyone's pockets lined. They were the worst that religion had to offer. But while we give the worst, Jesus offers the best. You know why I struggled with God? I struggled with God because not that I wanted to give him my worst. I just wanted to give him, you know, my leftovers. You know, Canada already had a day off on Sunday. But I gave my best during that week. Sunday I was done. That way I would have to have a bulletin so I could doodle on it just to pay attention. I would have to dream about running around on the platform so I wouldn't fall asleep. I gave my best Saturday night. I had nothing left on Sunday. Well, I give my imperfect when I give him my rubbish, he gives, consistently gives his best. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews, verse 14, that it would be expedient that we could target one man to blame for all the unrest in Palestine. So when Rome comes, they won't blame all of us. 
He won't put the whole class in detention. But it would be expedient that one man should die for all of us. Not that he was a prophet. He was a plotter. He was a strategist. Who can we target? Oh, this guy. It's almost as if he's setting us up. Is he going to be sorry when we call his bluff? But Jesus was God. He knew all that was to happen. He offered himself willingly. Well, we offer our worst. He steps up. He gives his best. This is where Caiaphas worked. And really, you know, it's, it's impossible in, in a little illustration taken out of the Jewish encyclopedia to depict the horror of this altar. I mean, when, when we see it, it just looks like, you know, a drawing, right? Do you understand that week after week, slaughtered animals were laid on that altar? Do you understand that the blood of those animals was sprayed on the altar? It was covered with generations of blood and ash. It was a, a horrific altar meant to depict the horror of sin to a holy God. Remember that prayer. It was the high priestly prayer. And that high priest was getting ready to replace the plotter. He was getting ready to make himself the high priest. He was getting ready to replace the horror of this altar for the horror of another. And now scripture reminds us that this high priest has turned everything upside down. In a culture that embraces blame, Jesus took it. Should I not receive the cup that my father asked me to drink? Put your sword away, Peter. The great I am doesn't need help from a fisherman. Should I not drink this bowl of wrath that a holy God has for the horrific sin of humanity? Should I not drink that and offer myself on the altar once and for all? This is what his best looks like. Hebrews 9, 12 says, So he entered once, for everyone into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Hear this, thus securing my eternal redemption. When I offered him my worst, when I offered him my leftovers, he offers me eternal redemption. In a culture that taught me to blame everyone else for my sin, everyone else for my problems, Jesus said, yes, 
I will receive it. I will bear the weight of God's wrath. I will shed my blood once for you, Ian, forever, once for all. I will be the good shepherd. I am that I am. So, what do you come bringing this King of Kings, this perfect Lamb of God? Some of you come bringing brokenness and rubbish, and you feel bad. Here's who else should feel bad. Those of us who come bringing the rags of our own righteousness feel bad. It's a fisherman's sword all of our good works. In this regard, whether we've been good or bad, naughty or nice, our righteousness is a stench to the Almighty. Just as our sins are, whether good or bad, all of us need it. The sacrifice of a good, holy high priest his blood and his alone, not my righteousness. That's why we ask you to sing, I will cling, not to the Baptist brand. I will cling, not to Grace Baptist Church. I will cling, not to the religion of Christianity, but I will cling to Christ. He is my priest. I need no other. I would like to invite you to bow with me just for a moment. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I honestly, literally, do not care where you have been this week or what you have done. I don't care what your eyes have been seeing. I don't care what your lips have been speaking. Because even now, Jesus Christ does with, no, with what no end of pastoral counseling can do. Jesus Christ comes to the holiest place, sprinkling it with his own blood, so that you and I can come empty-handed and cling to him. If you're in need of a savior, you need to know his name is I am, and he is Lord. Not just on Sunday mornings when we sing his songs, but on Mondays when we listen to other songs, he is Lord. Not just on Sundays when we come into church, but on Tuesdays, when we go into the office, when we go to school, when we ride transit, when we go to uni, he is Lord. If you would be embraced by him, the one who took your worst, the one who received your leftovers, and gave you his very best, then he is near 
and you can call on him. Think about the irony. As those soldiers marched into his garden synagogue, there was only one righteous man there. While they were looking for the guilty, there was only one man in the garden who was guiltless. And he was the man who said, I am he. You seek me. While the guilty cowered, while the sinful ran, the Savior stepped up, offered his hands to be bound, offered his wrist to receive the nails. And as his blood ran down the new altar we call a cross, he remained there until on Friday it was finished. The entire bowl of rock finished. Why? So that they will know how great is your love. So that your name would be known. That stands today, my friends. It's why we exist as a church. So that the name of the Lord, the great I am, the one who existed before time, who lives now and forever, so that his name would be known. I'll be honest with you. If you were to live an entire life and never met Ian Bruce Bunton, you would still be okay. But if you go through this life and never meet, never know the great high priest who took you as you are, exactly what you offer, and then in exchange offer himself, you are of most of all men, of all women, most desperately impoverished. This is your opportunity. As His Spirit hovers now, as He intercedes for you in the holiest place, if you feel like you've wrecked your life, come seeking the Good Shepherd. He is the one who will lead you to green pastures, to still waters. Wherever you have planted yourself, he will plant you where streams of living water flow. He has taken the blame. Would you receive his best? Right now, wherever you sit, I'm not going to ask you to hold your hand up. 
I'm not going to ask you to come forward, kneel at the altar, right where you sit. You could have a new day today. If you would say, oh, Lord God, I cry out to you, the great I am, ruler of heaven and earth, guiltless and yet who received guilt, my guilt, I come to you. Let me feel your embrace. He will not reject you. Father God, we're grateful that you are the one who comes to seek and to save. It's not our songs that save us. It's not our good behavior. But it is a great high priest who brought us a new idol, altars, climbed up on it, gave his life for the ransom of many. Let us be counted, O God, among the many. Do this so that we may participate just like the high priest, just like Jesus himself, in making your name known, modeling sacrificial affection, do this so that you would receive glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.